0: Good morning. Our text for this morning's message is found in the book of Exodus, the 23rd chapter, in verses 1 through 9. I invite you to turn there or bring it up uh, on your screens as we open uh, God's word. The passage reads this way. God says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It really is a delight and a pleasure for me to uh, be with you here virtually uh, this morning. Thanks to your pastors, Slim and Malcolm, for the invitation to bring God's word to you today. I do look forward to the opportunity, Lord willing, sometime in the near future Uh, to be with you, uh, to be with you physically. For now, uh, this will have to do, you'll hear from me from here in my uh, home office in Washington, D.C. I want to talk to you this morning on this subject, a caring courtroom, a truth, justice, and the gospel way. Would you uh, pray with me? Our Father and our God, We give you praise and thanks this morning, declaring that not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name belongs the glory. We thank you for your word that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Pray, Lord God, that you would speak to your people through the preaching of your word. And that you would grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory now and forever. Amen and Oh, Amen. Well, 2020 has been quite the year, uh, hasn't it? Um, there's been a lot of unrest over issues of injustice and racism again. But I wonder if you remember just two short years ago, uh, an incident that took place in, in Dallas, Dallas, Texas. young man named Botham Jean who was a native of the Caribbean island of St. Lucia. He had come to the States and got his undergraduate degree from a small Christian college in Arkansas. Then got a job in Texas with Price Waterhouse Coopers and on a fateful night in 2018, September 6th to be exact, his life was brought to an abrupt end at 26 years of age when a white female off-duty police officer, Amber Geiger, went into uh, Mr. Jean's apartment, mistakenly believing that it was her own, and she shot and and killed him. And a year later, September of 2019, her, her trial came to a conclusion, and she was. Found guilty and convicted of uh, of murder, and during the trial, uh, she she said that she feared for her life when she entered uh, both in Jean's apartment. However, she also admitted during her testimony uh, that she had not uh, followed proper protocols in assessing the situation at the very beginning. There was also text message evidence pre- presented during the trial that uh, that showed uh, uh, some level of racial bias on her part. She was convicted of murder and uh, sentenced to ten years in prison. And there was a mix of emotions, particularly among the African American community. You would hear this on uh, on talk radio shows. Uh, first, there was a sense of disbelief and a sense even of satisfaction that the judicial system had found a white police officer guilty in the killing of an unarmed black man. and There was also, however, a feeling and a sense of uh, disappointment and anger over a 10-year sentence, knowing that she could uh, be out of jail in five years. I would hear on these talk shows African Americans call in and some share that they had been given longer sentences for for lesser crimes. Uh, people wanted to know what if the situation were reversed? What if a, uh, a black off-duty male police officer had uh, had shot and killed an unarmed white woman sitting in her own apartment with the sentence, Be so light. But the conversation around this trial became even more intense following the hug that went viral. Both and Jean's 18 year old younger brother, Brant, gave a victim statement at the conclusion of the trial and asked the judge if he could approach Amber Geiger. He said to her in his statement If you are truly sorry, I know. I can speak for myself. He said, I, uh, I forgive you. I think giving your life to Christ, he told her would be the best thing that both them would want for you. I love you as a person. He said, and I don't wish anything bad on you. And then he asked the judge, can I give her a hug, please? And when the judge said it was okay, Geiger rushed over and embraced Ah uh, Brandt Jean, in this long hug while sobbing could be heard in the courtroom. Even the African American State District Judge Tammy Kemp wiped tears away from her eyes during the moment. And this the visceral reaction to that moment is was captured in two comments that I I heard from different African American men on a radio talk show host uh, program, rather. One guy called in and and he said, what's wrong with that boy? If I were a member of his family in that courtroom, I would have reached over and punched him in the face. Maybe forgiveness, maybe later down the line. But right now I want to see her suffer. I want her to experience some pain. Why are you running so fast to forgive? Next caller, another African-American man and. He had a different take. He said that justice had been done with the conviction. And then he talked about Brant Jean's hug and the fact that the judge, judge rather hugged her as well and, and gave her a Bible. And then he said, what I witnessed was a caring courtroom. He was implying in that statement that justice and mercy are not mutually exclusive or necessarily contradictory. And I want to be clear, this is a complex issue. Uh, we even engaged it in conversation in my own family. There is an ease in which our society will embrace and celebrate black expressions of forgiveness towards whites and use them as model pictures of reconciliation. And there's also an ease with which our society will deplore black expressions of public protest against systemic injustice. So this is not a need and a tidy issue. It is, in fact, a very messy one. And I think that our text this morning helps us to wrestle with, with what is good and what is just and what is a right, particularly for people for whom Jesus Christ is Lord. I got the title for this message, A Caring a Courtroom, from that caller I just mentioned. It fits the context in uh, uh, dealing with lawsuits in our text, fairness, equity, and and justice for God's people. Legal matters are presented in this passage, but this passage is not a some kind of proof test text, rather, for American uh, jurisprudence. It is a passage that helps us to grasp grasp the implications of what it means to obey God's command to love our neighbors. I want to share uh, three Ps for you uh, in this message. I want to talk about the purpose of the passage. I want to talk about the predisposition of the human heart. And I want to talk about the promotion of justice, purpose. Our passage is situated in the second section of uh, the book of Exodus. Exodus chapters 1 through 18, they focus on God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, his saving them. In chapters 19 through 24, uh, the focus of the book is on the giving of the law in chapters 25 through 40 focus on worship, God dwelling in the midst of his people. And here is the point. The purpose of this passage is wrapped up in this context. The Lord is explaining uh, to his people how they are to live in light of the fact that he has saved and delivered them. they situated at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God told Moses in chapter three and verse eight of this book, "I've come down to deliver my people out of the hand of the Egyptians." And then He says to them in verse twelve of that chapter, "But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that He tells Moses that that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." And three months after the exodus, they come to Mount Sinai and the Lord speaks to them with poetic tenderness in chapter 19 and verses 4 to 6. He says to them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see, God's law always comes in that context. God has demonstrated his His power to save, his power to deliver, and now that they belong to him, they need to know how they ought to live. Now that you're a liberated people, how are you to live? We hear the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and, and they're summed up in the command to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might and to love your neighbor as yourself. And here is the beauty of it. God doesn't just give them these 10 terse commandments. He begins to flesh out what it looks like to to follow him and follow his commands in practice. And so our nine verses are working out actually the implications in a legal setting of commandment six, you shall not murder of commandment 8. You shall not steal of commandment 9. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor of commandment 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And here is a connection for, for you and I. What does it mean to be a Christian? See, the Christian life, it doesn't start with a list of do's and don'ts. It is, it is a life that is rooted in love, rooted in an undeserved love of God extended to and lavishly poured out upon us. It is rooted in God's love directed towards rebellious people who are his enemies because of their rebellion. And when? By faith. God opens our eyes to see and to receive that love. We respond by confessing and repenting of our sinful and rebellious ways, and we put our hope squarely in him. And then we are able to grasp the fact that his law is a gift and not a vice. We're able to say, like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. And God works this way. He works this way when it comes to people like you and I, because he understands the predisposition of the human heart. He understands our predisposition. He understands what our tendencies are. He understands that our tendency is to love those to love us back. We have a sandwich structure in these nine verses, if you will. Verses 1 to 3 and verses 6 to 8, I would call the bread of the sandwich. They come to us as simple commands. You Shall not language that apply to giving testimony uh, in a court, and verses four and five are in the middle, and they are situational laws, if you will. If, if, when this situation takes place, then this is what you must do. And I want to first talk about uh, uh, the this middle portion. We're going to talk about the the bracketing verses in a minute, but I want to focus on verses. 4 and 5, listen again to what the Lord says. If you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you will surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who takes you lying down, exhausted, under its burden, you will refrain from abandoning him. You will surely free it with him. This is not so much about ox and donkeys. It is God with shock and awe telling his people that neighbor love is to be extended to people they despise and people who despise them. God knows us all too well. Where are we most likely to ignore and reject the implications of what it means for us to love our neighbors? It is with those who, for whatever reason we believe, are not worthy of that love. Stop, stop and just think about this for for a minute. I know that you all are wonderful people, but do you know somebody who doesn't like you? Can you think of somebody who might have even a sense of hatred towards you? Somebody who despises you? Even if you can't think of someone who thinks of you that way, imagine if that was the case. What would be your natural, or what is, your natural inclination toward people like that? I mean, especially if you, uh, you see or you come across that person with a real need that you are able to meet. An Israelite who came across someone's stray ox or stray donkey would know that person is suffering a loss in their ability to provide for themselves and for their family. Both of the situations described in verses four and verse and five, they affect someone's livelihood. They affect someone's ability to provide for themselves and for their families. and the Lord knows that the Israelites' natural inclination is towards people who despise them or whom they despise. The natural attitude is going to be good. you deserve it. God is getting you back. <laughs> for how you've been treating me. Listen, God doesn't call his people to engage in karma, tit for tat. He calls his people to engage in compassion, and it is never more evident than when those who have done us wrong are in a position of very real need and we have the opportunity to come alongside and meet that need. And this is why the context of the passage matters so much. Israel receiving this message as a delivered people would know that that's precisely what God did for them they were helpless and mumbling and grumbling and complaining against God and he saved them yet even still in so many respects these verses can be summed up in Jesus's words in the sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5 verses 44 to 48 where Jesus says to his disciples love your enemies Extend and express love to those you and others despise in practical ways. The command, listen, the command for those who understand that they have been the undeserving recipients of God's lavish love, the command. For these people to love their enemies is not just a New Testament idea that came out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. It has always been the call. It has always been the case for the people of God. If you read Matthew 5, verses 44 to 48, you'll hear Jesus said, say, say That the the love of your enemy is the demonstration that you are children of your father in heaven. Because that's what the father does. Arthur Brooks has a relatively new book out uh, titled Love Your Enemies. And in it, he argues that America's current National problem, particularly as it relates to our political climate, is a culture of contempt. That is a culture where our disposition towards people who disagree with us is a toxic combination of anger mixed with disgust. He says, the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. This is the attitude that we often bring to spaces like social media where there's disagreement. He writes in his book, every single one of us is going to have an opportunity on social media or in person to answer somebody's contempt. So you, so are you going to do the right thing and make the world a little bit better? show your strength, and try to make your enemies your friends, or are you going to make the problem worse? That's a question each of us gets to answer, he says, probably in the next 24 hours. So here's the deal. Uh, It is likely that most of us don't or won't ever own any ox or donkeys. I know I certainly will not here in Washington, D.C., But there is a nowness, there is a right nowness to the opportunity to actively reject the disposition of contempt towards those we find utterly intolerable and to express the kind of love that demonstrates a desire to will what is good even for people we have a tendency to despise. And it's not rejecting a predisposition of contempt and hatred for those we tend to despise. It is actually also an active promotion of what is good and just. Look at who are referred to in those sandwich verses, uh, verses 1 to 3 and 6 to 8, as. The Lord focuses on a courtroom setting, a, a legal case setting. He says in verse number one, you shall not spread a false report. Don't join your hands with a, with a wicked person to be a malicious witness. This is referencing a, a court case. So the wicked person being described is, is someone who is guilty of a crime. Don't spread a false report, the Lord says. Don't deal in lies. That, that word for malicious that, uh, in, in, in the text has, uh, has the, the sense of, of violence and, and wrong. The Lord is saying that it's not only wrong to give false testimony, but there is violence and there is harm done when you try to make the guilty look innocent. We see that in verses 7 to 8, where verse 1 forbids making the guilty look innocent. Verse 7 forbids making the innocent look guilty. He says in verse 7, you shall be far from a false charge and you shall not kill the innocent and righteous because I will not acquit the wicked. And then he explains what might be the reason for doing this injustice of making the innocent guilty look guilty or making the guilty look innocent. In verse eight he says, You shall not take a bribe because it 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 blinds those who see clearly. And he connects this likely reason for the temptation to actually pervert justice. We are motivated by our own self-centered gain and benefit. God's people are to be people who are anti-injustice. Then in verse 2, the many or the crowd he refers to. The sense here is that very often, watch the crowd... The many exerts pressure to side simply with the majority opinion and then I have to admit i <laughs> I got surprised when I came across verse uh, verse number three uh my sermon preparation work i typically after reading the the text in English I either work on translating it for myself out of the Hebrew text in the Old Testament or the Greek text in the New Testament. And verse 3 says, you shall not be partial to or show favoritism to a poor person in their law- lawsuit. And when I was translating that verse from the Hebrew text, I was struggling. I was like, is that really what he's saying? I was expecting uh, more of what we read in verse number 6. Uh, you shall not pervert the justice due to your needy in his lawsuit. That's more in line with what we normally find uh, in the Bible when it comes to people who are marginalized or oppressed. It's normally the case that they are being uh, uh, taken advantage of and you have to promote their cause actively. In fact, some Bible scholars have postulated that there's actually a corruption in the Hebrew text in verse number three because with one character, the word poor in verse number three changes to great, and it would be, you shall not show favor to the great in his lawsuit. But that's not what it says. There's no textual evidence for a change In the meaning of that verse. See in a legal case. The Lord is actually. Forbidding giving advantage. To anyone. The poor. Right have the marginalized. The oppressed. They have no advantage. In society. But it's forbidden. To show favoritism in the courtroom. Even to the disadvantaged. Disadvantaged. What God is driving home for us is the continued point that he is a just God. He is a God of justice and righteousness, and in humanity among us, there is no inherent uh, righteousness. So whether we are wealthy or whether we are disadvantaged, it does not mean that we have some inherent righteousness. We can be wealthy and wrong, and we can be poor or marginalized and wrong. God says when it comes to doing what is just and right, show no partiality when you're dealing with something that is a reflection of or an expression of evil or wrong. That's the sense here. The poor person could be wrong in his lawsuit, so don't show favoritism to him. As one commentator put it, God's people are to do what is right, not simply what feels right. With God, there is never, ever a perversion of justice. There's only the promotion of justice. And the same point is actually made in Leviticus chapter 19 and 15 with reference to both the poor and great in the same verse. uh, The Lord says in that verse, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. At the heart of a caring courtroom is the cause of justice. Whose agenda, whose agenda drives our attitude? Whose agenda drives our disposition as we wade into the messy waters of the history of systemic injustice around race and ethnicity and class? Are we more informed by a heart of love that comes out of an understanding of God's love that has been put on display for us in Jesus Christ, or are we more informed by the opinions in our echo chambers on social media and cable news? See, God, God drives us in his word toward a different way The attitude towards their neighbors that God's people were to have is summarized in verse 9 when he says, You shall not oppress the sojourner, since you all know the sojourner's life. You know the heart of a sojourner, because you all were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You God says know what it's like to live on the margins you know what it's like uh, he tells uh, the people of Israel to have been oppressed you know what it's like to have been on the outs you know what it's like to be unable to trust the system because the deck the deck is stacked against you you know what it's like to be on the receiving end of injustice as a matter of course. You know it. And that's the attitude you bring, you are to bring to the matters and the issues of justice. It is one that does not neglect or forget the mercy that you have received. See, this love, that God calls us to, this love that God commands his people to exhibit is independent from attraction. It's not based on whether the recipients of that love are people we are naturally drawn toward. It is often most actually profoundly expressed in promoting those Who, the cause of those in this world or in our communities that we, that are are likely to be despised or ignored or rejected, promoting the cause of those who are the most vulnerable. And it's because we have in Jesus Christ a rich understanding of the mercy that we have received. Let me wrap this and bring it back to the case I opened with. My brother and friend, uh, Mike Higgins, around that same time, he posted a simple statement um, on his social media that I think summarizes it well. He says, he wrote, true justice must preserve the humanity of the convicted and the victim. True justice must preserve the humanity of the convicted and the victim. What we realize in the cause of justice is that we are always and only dealing with people who are image bearers of the true and living God. In this cause, we work in such a way That preserves and promotes the humanity of all who are involved. We don't dehumanize people. And we wade, we wade into the difficult and the, the messy and the murky waters of the, the attitude that yes, it seems like you run too fast, too quick to forgive we we run into those murky messy waters that say what about the what about the history of black pain when it comes to to white authorities what about that yes all of it but what makes for the preservation of the humanity of the convicted and the victim, of the guilty and the innocent. This is the hard way. This is the hard way, but it's God's way. It's the gospel way. It's God's heart. The way of those who have been recipients of his rich and lavish love and mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the way I I implore you to take as we press forward into these hard and difficult challenges of being people who promote the gospel way. Even as we speak out about injustice and unrighteousness in our land and in our communities, we do it to the glory of God for the love of our neighbors, even those we have a disposition and tendency to despise. Would you pray with me? Father and our God, we thank you that your ways are always good and just, that you are a God of justice and righteousness. We pray that you would bless us and work in us by the power of your spirit to be people who promote the cause of justice out of a heart of love. Love for you and love for fellow image bearers. Lord, being willing to take the difficult path to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.